You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome to Tasting Together. It is our first show of 2023. I'm your host, Andre Pru. Happy New Year, and it's me, Maroki Tong, joining you from Arizona. Are you just trying to make the audience hate you? I don't know if everyone would hate me for being in Arizona. I'm sure there's a lot more mixed opinions about hanging out in the middle of the desert. I think at this time of year, most Canadians would pick the desert over the slushy, cold Golden Horseshoe. It did hail earlier this week. It was a very strange phenomenon to experience. Okay, but is it hailing now? No, it's not hailing now. (laughs) (laughs) So we did a whole month of what felt like just celebrating, telling people about the really great food to eat, telling people about the really great wines to drink. Um, And you have something that you want to kick off this year, which I think is actually a very interesting way to start 2023. I always find it fascinating how at the end of the year, we start reflecting on everything that has been happening. Then we enter January and that's when everyone starts tightening their belts being more budget conscious. And then we have like Blue Monday that happens at the middle of the month where we talk about how it's the saddest time of the year. And as we, um, you know, as we closed out 2022, an article popped up on my feed from BlockTO that talked about 30 notable businesses that Toronto lost in 2022. And I went, what a thing to bring up at the end of the year. We're entering New Year's Eve. We're about to celebrate. And we're going to talk about all the things we lost in the restaurant industry. And I think perhaps it was how it was phrased, too. It it made it sound like it was something that we were required to grieve over it. But Andre, if I had to be honest, I think the reasons why a restaurant decides to close is varied. And it's not always, you know, a circumstance that is um, unexpected or was, I guess, in some ways, like devastating to the restaurant. I think sometimes there are reasons that go beyond that. What do you think? No, I agree with you on on that. Um, it, it has been a fascinating few years for people who work in hospitality. You know, I, I don't know if I, I've mentioned on the show before, but my wife is a is a pastry chef uh, and has worked in various restaurants all over the all over the city. It's been a real struggle during the pandemic. Um, and you know, I'm I'm one person where in social media and in other writing that I've done, where I've been quite critical. I don't think the government really did enough to help restaurants really fully weather the pandemic. I think there's a lot of restaurants that are still swimming in debt from just getting through it. And here we are heading into 2023, where we're talking about the overall economic situation that's taking place in in Canada with high interest rates and, you know, people keeping on talking about a looming recession. Like there's a good chance that 2023 is going to be another really hard year for people in hospitality. But that doesn't mean that there haven't been restaurants that were doing really well. Or like you said, I think there's certain people where when you're talking about restaurant and hospitality companies, you take a look at your bottom line, you take a look at who is sitting in your restaurant and you have choices that you need to make. And it's not always because of the difficulties in the economy that are going to make you close up shop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know a few of the restaurants that were listed they indicated that they were closing because the owners wanted to retire. And I think that's not necessarily something to be sad about, perhaps sad for the consumer because you are not, you know, maybe not going to your favorite place anymore. But if the owners have worked really hard for 30, 40 years and they want to just move on and enjoy their life and enjoy the retirement, I see that as a point of celebration for them. 
I know it's always hard like as consumers to try to be really happy when something you love goes away. I think um, on, on the list, I don't know if it was so much of a retirement, but like Rosen Sons shutting down there on DuPont. Like that was a restaurant that was always just like one of my favorite places to um, one of my favorite places to go. But a lot of Anthony Rose's restaurants are, are still open to something about that location where it was a choice made to shut that down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, for a more tragic reason, stockyards in my neighborhood closed this year as well. And it was following a very tragic death by the owner yes. last year. And, you know, the restaurant tried to you know open up and go on. I think they just wanted to move on and, and do something different. Probably that was a, a change com- of scenery. Completely heartbreaking story. Um, and I, I feel bad for everyone who's not going to get a chance to taste what I'm about to say. But one of the most underrated and one of the best fried chicken places in Toronto. Andre, you brought up how you felt the government was not necessarily so- supporting hospitality the way they should have over the pandemic. And I do remember some very key situations that happened that I thought were absolutely devastating. I think one example that comes to mind was spring of 2021, there was an announcement to open up patios again um, after lockdown and restaurants absolutely scrambling to try and make their uh, patios be ready, including, you know, replacing heaters or pipes that had burst, bringing in stock to undergo a full provincial shutdown two weeks later which left a lot of them hanging out to dry. And I think that was, in my personal opinion, a rather despicable move. Um, yeah, I mean, and- I mean, without without going into specifically how poorly things were handled, I think that's a perfect example of just, uh, there's not a ton of money to be made in hospitality. A lot of people, when they open restaurants, they do it out of a labor of love. And yeah, obviously it's about putting food on the table, both metaphorically and literally for your for your customers. But the hospitality workers bore the brunt of a lot of this whole, are we open? Are we closed? Like, what's going on? I, I think we're going to see the shockwaves of, of what's happened from that for years to come, not just in Toronto, but cr- across the country. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and that being said, I think there were a couple of restaurants that closed as well that might have just, you know, um, fallen victim to perhaps not the best business practices and, and and perhaps maybe whether or not there was a pandemic the business was doomed to fail and 100%. i think this is something we talk about in the restaurant business maybe even small businesses in general that you know you have someone who's passionate and they want to open something but may be a little bit surprised by how difficult it is to run a business versus just saying i love to cook i want to open a restaurant totally well i, I think there's one example on the list that sort of stands out to me and i think you and i we were chatting a little bit off the microphone about what the circumstances are for that closing. I think I think one of the problems with with Toronto is the the cool people in the city are looking for what's shiny and what's new. And to see Momofuku closing on University Avenue, like when Momofuku opened up in Toronto, that was a a big deal. That was one of the things where I think a lot of people in in Toronto feel that Toronto isn't cool enough or big enough or isn't New York enough. And this was David Chang, like a, a rock star in the culinary world, bringing his brand to Toronto. And I I, I think about how often I, I set foot in that restaurant, how often I went to Noodle Bar because it's a place I could afford or go up to Milk Bar on the second second floor because it just had this cool feel to it. 
And it's just, I can't quite pinpoint it, but I really think that the brand and David Chang, the the head of the industry or the, the head of that enterprise, has lost a lot of his cool factor. I will say that as a person who is very like rah, rah about fellow Asians represent, David Chang will always kind of be cool to me. Um, but I, I think it's a matter of economy. You know, when you have a brand that big and there's Momofuku in New York, and I, I think there's some in the West Coast, you make assessments every year. And, you know, real estate in Toronto isn't cheap. And when you have a when you have an enterprise that big taking up such a uh, in such a prominent area of, you know, near the financial district, you might just have to make an assessment at the end of the year, especially following a pandemic where you likely had very, very little foot traffic in that neighborhood. Especially during the pandemic. I think you just have to make a decision and, and cut your losses. And for me, again, I understand how it's a sad thing for the consumers, but I, I don't think that brand is hurting financially all too much. You know, I... Without saying too, too much, just I can't wait to see what new cool shiny place is going to occupy that fantastic space on University Avenue. But maybe this is just me showing how much of a Torontonian I am and how short my attention span is. And no brand loyalty for me in Momofuku in Toronto in 2023. Well, something shiny will occupy that space for sure. But stick around. Coming up after the break, we're going to be chatting about some restaurants that have made some very interesting and positive pivots over the last couple of years, including opening bottle shops for you to get all your wine and beverage needs. So we will see you soon on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Hello and welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong and I'm with my co-host Andre Prue. Andre, since it is the new year and we want to chat about all the things that have happened over the last year, probably a couple of years and into 2023, <laughs> I think one thing that has really changed in the scene in Toronto is the rise of bottle shops. You know, and I bet you there's a lot of people who are listening to the radio right now who don't realize that there are other options to buy really great bottles of wine that mean you don't need to go to the LCBO. And I know when you go into a restaurant, a lot of people really like that experience. And a lot of the really great wine directors and sommeliers in the city go out of their way to stock their lists with choice bottles that you can't necessarily find at the LCBO to really give that special experience to their customers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And they're your wine experts. And in some ways, probably not. not <laughs> I, I'm going to throw myself under the bus here, but like not to say that everyone at the LCBO is not necessarily experienced, but obviously people are not required to be wine experts to work at LCBO. And here in a restaurant, you have the opportunity to speak to someone who's made it their entire life to talk to you about wine. And we are actually joined right now by someone who has made it his life to learn all about wine. Arash Shroff, who is the director of beverages at Iskari Hospitality Group, which is a bunch of really good restaurants, but we're focusing on one in particular, which is Mercatino Ivini. Uh, Arash is also a former top 30 under 30 award winner in the hospitality sector. And there's a really great article you dug up that describes him as a gastronome and cork excavator. I love it. Arash, let's get into the first question here is what is a cork excavator? You know, uh, a cork ex excavator is just uh, something that uh, my friends like to call me. Uh, you know, it's just another word that gets thrown around for someone that is just uh, loves wine, lo loves wine service and loves uh, speaking to guests about wine. 
I think it's such an awesome name. I I think sometimes, you know, when we hear the word sommelier, uh, Andre and I have talked about this a couple of times, Arash, where sometimes we feel intimidated by people we meet in a restaurant, especially if we don't really, if we're not sure what we're talking about. And here we are face to face with someone who clearly has more expertise than we do. And when you have a name like Cork Excavator, it just makes it so fun. <laughs> So I know that the Ascari restaurants were some of the restaurants that made the the pivot. I know that that's not the word for 2023, but in 2020 and 2021, that was definitely the words of the years, the pivot where you shifted from being just your regular restaurant to offering some high quality takeout foods. But I think for people like Maroki and I, most importantly, um, the word bottle shop became synonymous with the restaurants that you work for. Uh, I guess maybe the first thing just to break it down for our listeners is what exactly is a bottle shop? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a, bo- a, a bottle shop is essentially uh, sort of this hybrid restaurant model where um, restaurants have the opportunity to offer their S restaurant level wines at retail pricing. I think it's a model that we've seen before in continents like Europe, where, you know, if you go into a restaurant, you can see bottles just lined up across the front of the restaurant um, with an opportunity to buy them. And I think if we were to say there is a silver lining of 2020, quote unquote, I I think it's the rise of the bottle shops. And Arash, was shifting from a restaurant to a bottle shop intuitive at all in 2020? Or were there a lot of challenges you had to face to make that change? You know, I wouldn't be doing it justice by saying it was intuitive. I think it was just more of a kind of an a survival instinct. Um, it was sort of, okay, restaurants are now closed. How can we pivot our offerings and really offer our guests that have been so loyal to us this whole time? How can we continue t- to offer what they love um, now that we're sort of in this pandemic and we've sort of seen how kind of bottle shops have taken off from there? Well, I guess the question I have for you then is, have bottle shops, in fact, taken off? Or is there still a bit of a slow uptake for consumers to start considering bottle shops as an alternative or um, an enhancement to their experience at the LCBO when looking for a bottle of wine to take home with them? You know, I think bottle shops have taken off to some degree. Now, at Ascari, we were able to really offer our restaurant beverages through the Ascari bottle shop. And we were so well received by all the Leslie Villians that it allowed us to open a brick and mortar store. And on top of that, it not only for Leslie Villians, but Torontonians as a whole, it allows the consumer to really enjoy a restaurant quality average that isn't normally available at the LCBO at retail costs. And it really allows people to either enjoy a night in with a wonderful quality product or kind of grab uh, a grab and go item, whether that's a meal kit or cocktails to go or even uh, wine by the bottle. I think you put uh, hit the nail on the head, Arash, with regards to saying that someone can enjoy something that isn't necessarily available at the LCBO. And I would say that that was something I enjoyed and was so grateful for when bottle shops came out. I was like, oh, these bottles that I always loved, I don't have to go buy a case from an agent in order to actually be able to enjoy it. I can just purchase one from a restaurant and enjoy it in my home. And as someone who's a consummate wine nerd, I would say sometimes the list at the LCBO gets a little bit redundant for me. And you said that, you know, you had your loyal customers and then you have sort of expanded since then. Do you see the demographic 
changing with regards to who is purchasing wine from your restaurant or from your bottle shop? Yeah, absolutely. So we like to kind of categorize our consumers uh, into three kind of categories. The first 40%, I guess you could say, are the consumer like myself that it's six or six thirty at night uh, i'm on my way home and it finally clicks in my head oh my god i have nothing in my fridge and i need to grab something to make at home i stop at my local auto shop which is mercatino evini for a little pack with pasta a, a bottle of bolognese and a bottle of wine i go home it's all ready in under 15 minutes now the next 40 percent are people sort of that are just looking to explore the world of beverages and have sort of been introduced to that at a restaurant level and now really want to kind of branch out and learn about the cool wines of the world and kind of have the, have those conversations with our associates in stores. And then the last 20 percent are just people looking for a cozy place to hang out, have a glass of wine or a pint of Peroni while kind of snacking on a Peroni board while it's raining outside, you know, so it's kind of uh, our consumers sort of fit in that all encompassing kind of area. Well, Arash, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to break down, I guess, bottle shop culture. And it's really cool to hear that uh, things have taken off because I know if you are sitting in your car right now and you aren't familiar with these shops that are popping up, just if you start looking for the word bottle shop in Google, you'll start to see these places are starting to pop up everywhere from Hamilton to St. Catharines. They're definitely moving out of the downtown core of Toronto. But if you are in the downtown core, stepping by Mercatino e Vinny is a great place to go and grab a great bottle of wine. And uh, Arash Shroff, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you. If you want to hear more about Mercatino Evini's events, um, they have drop-in tastings every second Saturday of the month, a wine subscription program, and even margaritas by the draft on Sundays. So make sure you check them out on their website or their socials. I still feel like I'm part of some sort of secret club when I set foot into one of my favorite bottle shops, um, just to name a few, like Archive, Midfield. I know you have a few that you really love. Um, there's a Loop Line, which is closer to the Midtown area, Grand Crudeli, Great Witches, which was actually meant to be an event space that went to bottle shop immediately during the pandemic and now is also a kind of hybrid model of both. And for me, Andre, when you go to your favorite restaurant for dinner, see if they're selling their bottles. Because if you had something delicious that you paired with the dinner, why would you not want to take one home? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And a lot of these places are really good at repping local wineries or wine agents. Like they are products that you can't get at the LCBO, which is super exciting. So, you know, I know we're past the gift giving season, but it's definitely something to keep in mind going forward. So yeah. there's always a dinner party, always a birthday. 100%. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking a little bit more about how the pandemic has permanently changed uh, our dining experience. I think I might be making a bit of a stretch in this tease, Maroki. You have something in mind for what's after the break? It, it is the takeout model. Well, there we go. Stay Wait. tuned on 640 Toronto. <laughs> Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Hello and welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong and I'm joined as always by my co-host Andre Pru. Andre, so restaurants have opened back up over this year. Are you still ordering takeout? Oh, like a fiend. I love me some are takeout. You, are you ordering takeout from spots that you normally would go and dine in? Um... 
I'm actually using like the whole rise of the takeout apps and the changes of behavior over the past couple of years is just something that I have fully embraced. Um, there is an app that I downloaded and they have not paid for this shout out, but it's just because I love playing a little bit of Russian roulette with my taste buds. Fantuan Delivery, which is largely Asian Chinese based um, cuisine on it. And it's just one of those things from living in Midtown Toronto. I just crave, you know, Chinese food from from um, from Spadina or from like an authentic Chinese restaurant. And I'll, I'll order Russian roulette style because some of these restaurants, they don't have the menus in English on Fantuan. I think that's kind of funny. It reminds me of when I was in Korea or Japan and I couldn't fully read the menus. And I, you know, oftentimes would piece together what little kanji I could read and kind of mix it up with the photos they would have on their menus and just sort of point to it and hope for the best. And then when the dish shows up and it's not at all what you were expecting, you eat it. Um, and I'd say, I'd say it's about 75 25 in my world of I've discovered some dishes that I really love and the 25% of the time ordering food this way is how I discovered that congealed pork blood at dim sum is not one of my favorite things it's not something I enjoy I grew up thinking it was brown tofu and always wondered why I did not like it until I learned what it was when I was about 10 so how, <laughs> how about you how about you are you nesting in your home at this time of year and going hard on the takeout or are you getting out of your house to support your local eateries? I think a mix of both. I, I was reflecting on this a little bit. One of the places that I have not really gone back to in person um, since restaurants have opened back up is sushi. I find I've been ordering almost all my sushi exclusively via takeout and I think one of the reasons why is because it packs really well. I often pick it up directly so I get it very quick and it's something easy to eat at home and I know it's still relatively fresh as opposed to some foods like ramen which I essentially refuse to order as takeout because it just will always arrive lukewarm and will never be that steaming experience where it just gets plunked right in front of my face and I have to enjoy on the spot right there so <laughs> I think it's been a bit of a variety you know it's helped me recognize some spot there are some places that I think is just the experience is best on location and there's some places that I think you know, it's actually serving me better um, as a takeout option. Now, you were speaking about apps, though, Andre. I think that's also something that has really changed over these last couple of years is there obviously has been an increased reliability on apps like Uber Eats or Skip the Dishes, but there's also a lot of commentary on how, you know, restaurants end up losing quite a bit of money when they use those apps and there's been a rise of alternative options including ordering from the restaurant directly or even competitor apps that have shown up that you know say that they do not take quite a large percentile of the dollars that you know you spend ordering through the app yeah i think that's a very important point to make the thing that i do like about the apps and i think this is the one thing that gives these apps the the real competitive advantage is you can literally open up a food app when you're hungry and scroll through, oh, what am I in the mood for and find the restaurant. But I, I think something a lot of people don't really think about is that these apps take a fairly large chunk out of the margins of the restaurants that are on the apps. And basically, they're paying for the convenience of being listed. Um, when I do find a restaurant that I really do love, 
I do try to order directly as often as I can. The other thing, though, about apps versus ordering directly is a lot of smaller restaurants, especially mom and pop shops who are able to get onto Uber Eats, though, is they don't have the ability to order online. And maybe this just makes me a typical millennial, but I don't like calling restaurants to phone my order in because, you know, there's no paper trail. If something shows up and it's not what I ordered, like I like with an app having a paper trail. So if something's wrong with my order, I can get it made right you know Mm, that's an interesting point and i know one of the things that people spoke about with the rise of delivery apps as well is making sometimes food more accessible to people who may not have the capability of leaving their homes and so apps you know especially that can deliver food straight to your door um makes it a lot more accessible to certain people and some people are willing to pay for that you know, that convenience or that benefit. And I think that's something to take into consideration as well. But I think um, it's nice when a restaurant kind of offers several options, whether you want to choose to order directly so that you can give them 100% of your money, you're not, you're willing to kind of be the one to drive out and pick up the food yourself versus paying the convenience fee to the people who want to just have like a seamless experience on an app and have it delivered straight to your door. Yeah, I think these are things that people can and should be more mindful of. Um, well, I mean, this whole show, we're being a little bit depressing. We've literally spent the whole time basically <laughs> rehashing how awful the pandemic has been to our, our restaurant talking about bottle shops and everything. And now, you know, we're talking about the, the delivery delivery apps. So I don't know, maybe, maybe to shift this to something that's a little bit more of a lighter note. One thing that I've really enjoyed about how takeout options have shifted over the past couple of years has been the different like the whole definition of takeout of how it has changed. Like I'm thinking about stock TC, which is in in your neck of the woods in midtown there that, you know, it's very much a a restaurant on its upper floors, but on the whole main floor, it's a really high end sort of mini grocery store with really great options for either prepared meals or half prepared meals. Or if you want to go buy like a really nice piece of meat, they've got a bit of a butcher there. It's just a whole concept of like, takeout being elevated thanks to everyone's behavior changing over the past couple of years. It's true. And I will say, Andre, there are times I have enjoyed in fine dining, you know, places from fine dining restaurants in the comfort of my own home, in my PJs. I don't need to put on airs. I don't need to pretend to be someone I'm not, but I can eat my fine dining meal on my own plates and just call it a day. That is like, that must make it like the finest dining to be able to eat from a really good restaurant in your PJs. And I think a, a, a you know a good restaurant ha- will learn how to be innovative when it comes to their takeout methods. So I remember getting um, some takeout from Lee in the last couple of years and the way they package their food, it just, you know, in, it, it just gives it a care that makes you actually feel like you're living an elevated experience, even when it's takeout from, you know, separating their wet and dry ingredients yes. um, to wrapping things in a special foil so that when you put it in the microwave, it will heat it back up, but not necessarily nuke it to death. Um, to, well, well-written you know, instructions, putting... well-written instructions yeah. go a long way from places. Because like, you talked about your, your ramen experience. I actually really don't mind ordering pho or ramen takeout um, because you're right. The, the, what usually happens is it ends up packaged up in your house with your with your noodles and your um, whatever is going on top of your noodles in a separate bowl, and the broth arrives at your house lukewarm. Um, don't microwave it, but put it on your stovetop <laughs> in a pot and heat it up to the temperature that you want. It goes a long way to really elevating that 
experience. So I'm I'm fearless in ordering my soups um, takeout <laughs> because I think that's just a bit of the hack is knowing to heat up the broth on the stove top. That's fair. Maybe it's because I don't have all the lovely accoutrements that comes with eating ramen, like the bowl and the wooden spoon. And for me, that is a little <laughs> bit part of that particular experience. Whereas I, you know, have some decent plates and some cutlery when it comes to <laughs> just eating steak at home. But one of the other things I think is a positive change is the push towards better packaging and yes. more sustainable packaging. Because for years, you know, we've been living out of these styrofoam containers and these black containers, which are not recyclable in yep. Toronto. And I've seen changes. They're very slow. Obviously, I'm sure restaurants have whack loads of them in stock and it's hard to kind of, you know, change. And I know that sometimes sustainable packaging is a little more expensive, but it's good to see, you know, there's a, I think there's a new dim sum place that opens. They have compostable packaging and I'm seeing more white plastics coming up for those who, you know, still choose to use plastics as part of their takeouts. It's one of the things that I, I do find exciting like you said is that things aren't staying this starts aren't staying the same like we've come a long way from the styrofoam package that your mcdonald's burger came in in the 80s and 90s to now really some innovative ways of making sure that the food's staying fresh and that the environmental impact of your meal is at a minimum you know i think it's been very divisive and um people have strong opinions on the disappearance of plastic straws mainly because cardboard straws do suck i don't enjoy using cardboard straws but i mean we're doing a good thing for the environment but i'm curious to see what the next step is going to be because there are places now that are using straws that either feel like plastic or at the very least don't get mushy halfway through and we're going to see that evolution continue to take place to make sure that the dining experience keeps getting better and better whether you're in the restaurant or at home Speaking of changes, I know some of us have been reflecting and making some changes in our drinking habits over the last couple of years. So after the break, we're going to be chatting a little bit about non-alcoholic beverages. I know, just stick it out, okay? Because dry January nope, dry -ish, is coming up. Dry-ish January, and I'll explain whatever the heck that means. Uh, this is Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. Dry-ish January. <laughs> This is Tasting Together, Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Pru. I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And after what was, I think, can only be described as a bacchanalian December, for those of us who really love wine, um, I am sliding into what I am calling dry-ish January. Maroki, how's your dry January going? Well... Considering I'm still on the road, I have this mentality that sometimes when I'm on the road, even if I'm working and I am working remotely, that somehow I'm still on vacation. So <laughs> there is no dry January or dry-ish January, not that I'm thinking of doing it, till I come back on the 11th. Okay, so when the month is half over. <laughs> yeah, that's the perfect dry January, right? And I think I'm just going to clarify on my side. I call it dry-ish January because when you work in food and beverage, I still need to do some occasional tasting for... Uh, some writing I do and for some other places, but uh, it means that I'm not opening up any bottles of wine on, on Thursdays or Friday nights. Uh, it's just something I try to be a little bit more committed to, um, given that December is quite busy for those of us who are crazy extroverts and entertain the entire month. Um, we are joined, as usual, by Global News anchor Danny Longo. Danny, how's your dry January going? Uh, it's actually going fairly well. I haven't had a drink this January. I'm uh, on some medication at the moment, so I'm trying not to uh, mix that. Uh, so uh, I should be done my medication in a few days, and I look forward to uh, getting into some of those bottles I got for uh, over the holidays. Oh, God. So you guys are making me do dry January by myself. 
I believe in drinking in moderation all year, but not to knock dry January too hard and make fun of it because I know a lot of people <laughs> are looking to either just take a break for their health. Maybe people are sober or sober curious. And I think a lot of us had to revise um, and reflect on some of our habits over the last few years. I definitely agree with that. I remember, and I'm, Danny, I'm sure you remember this as well, seeing some of those statistics that rolled into the newsroom after the first year of the pandemic, just there were sales that definitely spiked at the LCBO. People were definitely drinking more when you had nothing else to do with your time. And I think, especially after that first year in the pandemic, a lot of people needed to reflect on on their drinking habits. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the numbers did go up. I don't think it was just people had nothing better to do. I think a lot of people were um, using it as a, as a release with, with all the stress of the day and all the news. They just, you know, something to do at the end of the day. But uh, I think... Having a non-alcoholic options is sometimes a good idea, especially when you have guests who maybe have battled addiction or things like that. Uh, it's not easy to be around a, a whole lot of people who are drinking all the time when you can't. And I think it's just nice as adults to have non-alcoholic options that goes beyond juice, juice, pop, and water. And I know that's a particular complaint that some of my non-drinking friends have always voiced over the years. It's like, okay, well, we do craft alcoholic beverages, but how come there's no craft non-alcoholic beverages for us who want to have a great experience, but literally cannot? You know, it's it's something I think is just a little bit fractured in the fact that we do live in a in a drinking culture and largely Europe is the same way too. My, um, my wife, we're just, we're waiting for our first baby to decide to arrive. Um, so I spent the past nine months trying to help my wife find some interesting non-alcoholic beverages to enjoy. But we spent uh, part of the summer in France and, you know, I got very used to asking waiters, do you have anything more interesting on the menu other than sparkling water? And every single time in the most French way possible, the answer is without missing a beat. Nope, nothing more interesting than Perrier. It's just like, it's fascinating. Like exactly like you just said, Maroki, like, we just don't have that culture of making grown-up drinks. I put that in air quotes, grown-up drinks that have no alcohol, but it is a large growing uh, segment of the market right now. Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. bartenders also, like if you tell them, like sometimes they enjoy it. If you tell them, hey, I don't want anything with alcohol in it, but get creative. And, you know, they'll usually give you something that, you know, you will really enjoy. Some grenadine, some cranberries, some tonic, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of drinks that you can make that... Uh, are very enjoyable. Or you can go with the classics, Shirley Temple. I, I definitely have been seeing an increase of um, non-alcoholic cocktails being offered at bars and restaurants. Um, more than just asking someone to make you something non-alcoholic, there's completely separate menus that are being developed. You know, I, I remember going to a spot in Vancouver back in the summer and the restaurant we were at had a whole non-alcoholic cocktail option um, list that was completely different than the alcoholic beverages to the point where I was like, I really like that beverage. Do you think it would ruin it if I asked for a bit of rum in it? <laughs> That's funny. Um, I know there's a restaurant in Midtown Toronto, Cow Gully, where the family that owns the the restaurant, it's an Indian restaurant, but the family comes from, uh, uh, it escapes me right now, but I think it's Oman in the Middle East, uh, where it's a dry country. And they've put a lot of work into developing mocktails. They, they call them mocktails on their menu. And it's just like, I'm not sure how I feel about the word mocktail. Like it almost feels like you're making fun of the non-alcoholic. Is it like, I don't know. What do you guys think about like using the term mocktail on the menu for non-alcoholic beverages? I like it. I've never even thought of it that way. I guess, you know, sometimes when uh, you say a word so often, it kind of loses its meaning. <sighs> 
I, I suppose mocktail was always like that. Like, like for me, at most, it sounded maybe like mimicry or a little bit of a mirror to what a cocktail is. I, I've never saw anything as necessarily insulting about it. But if anyone has a second opinion, feel free to shoot Andre or I a DM at Andre Wine Review or myself at Nine Ounces Please on Instagram. We would love to hear what um, everyone else thinks on the matter. Have either of you, I have a question, had good non-alcoholic wine though? Because I'm I'm sold on the beer and I'm sold on some of the spirit options out there, but to date I have not tasted a good non-alcoholic wine. Hmm. I've had a hard time wrapping my head around the concept of non-alcoholic wine, and this is one where, as the resident snob in the room, for me, really great wine is about as little human intervention as possible to get it to the finish line, and it's just I have a hard time wrapping my head around making this delicious wine spending time making it in barrel, you know, spending time pouring over the the fruit and turning it into this great nectar from the gods and then sticking it in a machine and sucking the alcohol out of it. But over the past nine months with my wife being pregnant, she really likes sparkling wine. And there's a couple of products that I had a chance to try, but one that stands out is from a company called Oddbird. And it's a non-alcoholic sparkling wine that is a pretty darn dead ringer for... Um, you know, like a crema, it, it, it tastes like wine, it tastes like sparkling Riesling, depending on whether you get the white or the rosé. I definitely recommend that product. Oh, that sounds fun. Um, I haven't had any good non-alcoholic wine that I know of. But uh, one thing that uh, I've wanted to bring up with you guys, and this is really interesting, is we have a, me and my spouse have a mutual friend and they would travel to uh, Prince Edward County. They're from Montreal and they would vacation there like every summer. Um and they'd go to Sandbanks and they'd you'd go to wineries and they had younger children who obviously have grown now. But um, one thing that they did was they wanted to make a list of all the wineries that were like family friendly um, because some wineries and when you go for a tasting, they would offer their children like a grape juice or a mocktail or something like that. So I thought that was uh, something that was really cool uh, for kids. If you are visiting wineries or touring around, it's something interesting. I love that. And um, that's actually a really good point you bring up, Danny. I think there's a, there's a number of spots in Niagara that similarly do things like that, not just for younger kids, but if you are a designated driver as well, they will offer you unlimited juices or mocktails so that you have as fun of an experience as those who are imbibing in your party. Well, I think a key thing that we, we touched on at the beginning of this is making it not feel like an afterthought. Like I feel it's kind of it's taken us a really long time when we're talking about dining out to see that vegetarian options and now vegan options are now staples on menus and not just, you know, that mental picture of just serving a, an unseasoned piece of lettuce to the vegan in your group. Is It's just like, I think we still need to see the non-alcoholic, the non-drinking part of the culture evolve so that there are more interesting options that feel like they're made for grown-ups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And going back to the conversation of wine, I would say for me, my biggest issue with a lot of non-alcoholic non wines out there is they often are very, very sweet. I'd agree with that. And I, you know, as someone who prefers my wines dry and, you know, wanting it to kind of mimic as close to the original product as possible, I haven't quite found those bottles yet. Not to say I haven't tried. So, you know, in a circumstance that is a little bit different than yours, um, I had a, a parent who had a severe health issue last year and they couldn't drink alcohol for several months and I was making it my mission to try and find some really good non-alcoholic wine for them, which meant tasting a lot of not good non-alcoholic <laughs> wine. 
But as long as I continue seeing the labels and maybe if they're helped along by an award, because yes, I'll get sold on that label if I have to spend the money on it, I will keep trying them. Well, I mean, I'll let the listeners in on a bit of a surprise and it'll be something I'll work on with both of you as I am committed to doing dry January. It doesn't mean that our content on this show is going to be dry. Uh, we will continue to focus on what's <laughs> going on with beverages, especially at this segment of the show. But I have been quietly doing some journalistic research. I have some samples from some various producers that I haven't had a chance to taste yet. And I'll see what we can do to get together to maybe go through some non-alcoholic wines together and we can report back to the listeners if maybe we'll finally have some good non-alcoholic wine options for the people in the audience who do not imbibe. Well, if you want to find out more about our dry January or maybe our non-dry January, make sure you stick around for the rest of this month and ongoing. We're on every Saturday at 5 p.m. on Tasting Together, 640 Toronto. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next week.